They say that uh, whatever speaker the elders put on right after a meal is either expected to keep everybody awake, or if they can't keep them awake, it's not going to matter. So I'll be watching you, watching me, trying to figure out what Greg and Charles were thinking when they assigned me to this spot. Worst case, I guess Grant can wake you back up. Raise your hand if you know what the term Y2K is referring to. Quite a few. Some of the younger folks over here, maybe not as much. Some of them probably weren't, may not have been alive in the year 2000 or not old enough to really care what was happening in the year 2000. Y2K was referring to a software bug that was pretty ubiquitous. Um, Software developers had coded a two-digit date year in the date field, and which wasn't a really a big deal because much of the time you can kind of figure out, well, uh, this what the date range is. You're not going to assign a date for a person's birthday if they live in the Civil War because, you know, that doesn't make sense. And so all of that logic seemed to make sense until you get close to the century mark and all of a sudden zero, zero means the year 2000 or the year 1900 or the year 3000 or what, right? And that's the problem that the world found itself in. And, of course, there was a lot of uh, uh, hysteria about this because this could mean a lot of bad things. The worldwide in 2023 dollars spent about a trillion dollars to fix this. I say roughly a trillion because what's a few hundred billion between friends? Um, It it took a lot of money to solve this problem, but you don't spend a trillion dollars on anything. Well, maybe that's not true. Uh, You and I wouldn't spend a trillion dollars on anything unless it had a lot of significance. Uh, Clearly others in our nation would, but, um, but what's the risk? from this Y2K bug. Well, in in many cases, the code itself could break and just stop functioning. In other cases, it may give the wrong answer. So, what's the hysteria about? Well, all your money is going to disappear from the banks, planes are going to fall from the sky, society is going to devolve into the Stone Age and an apocalypse. That's what's going to happen. So, how many of you, raise your hands, took some precautions if you were alive, before the year 2000 for this. I saw just one or two people. Wow. Well, I will admit, I took a little precaution. I told Lita, buy a few extra canned goods, maybe a few jugs of drinking water, and we'll ride out anything that happens. I really thought it was overblown, but just in the off chance that the power went out, I wanted to have something to keep us alive for a while. There was a man who sold his house and he moved to the desert and he bought emergency rations and he bought water and he bought guns and ammunition because he was convicted that he was going to be fighting off bandits and he was going to protect his family and care for them. The net result was very little happened. New Year's Eve 1999 came and went without issue. By the way, I have found that anytime New Year's Eve comes, That new year comes whether I'm awake to see it or not. (laughs) But in this case, I decided, I'm just going to see what happens. So I watched the ball drop in New York, and it hit the bottom, and 
The world kept spinning, and the power was still on, and so I went to bed. Very little happened as a, as a result of Y2K. Now, it's pretty easy to mock the man who sold his house and went to the desert and spent all that money, he gave up all the assets that he had to take his family someplace where he thought he could care for them and protect them. It's easy to, to mock him because, in hindsight, he believed that this was a valid threat that was threatening the existence of he and his family. And in hindsight, it's easy to do that. He gave up everything he had of value to get a bunch of things that would be of value only if this dire prediction came true, and then it did not. But I have to give him some respect. He was convicted that this bad thing was going to happen, and he didn't ignore it. He instead did something about it. Even if you think of the principles that he lived by, that seems to have been, been something that we should do. If we're convicted that our family is at risk, shouldn't we do something about it? Even if it means giving up a lot, shouldn't that be of more importance than the assets that we have? In 1 Timothy, the 5th chapter and the 8th verse, the context here is talking about the church support of widows. <clears throat> but uh, it, it says uh, in verse 8, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially of those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A similar statement is made in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. We see this, the discussion about Jesus and his bride, the church, and how Jesus gave his life to care for and protect uh, the bride, the church. And in the same way, husbands should do that for their wives. So the, the concept of being prepared for disaster, protecting and providing for is a very biblical statement. Some of what I was asked to address was, that of physical persecution. Should we prepare for physical persecution? How much do we need to prepare physically for possible hardship, such as scarcity of food, fuel, or money? So what can the Bible tell us about this? Let's first consider David the shepherd boy facing Goliath. He took five stones. You might ask why he took five stones. There's conjecture in, in one case that uh, David knew that the Goliath he knew from 1 Samuel 17 also had four giant relatives. We find that out in 1 Samuel the 21st chapter when later, after David has killed Goliath, he and his men are fighting the Philistines and they kill four more giants that were relations of, of Goliath. Now, is it possible David knew that, or thought, that there may be four more giants just over the hilltop waiting for their chance to get involved? I don't know. It's possible. It's reasonable to think that he might have known that. I think giants were kind of a rare thing. So him knowing that, that's possible. But would a young shepherd boy know that? I, I don't know what the result of that is. You know, is that reasonable to think that that might have happened? It's reasonable to think that. But we know what the net result was, is that there, were, there was one giant who was killed by one stone. So David reached back in his pouch, and there's four more in there. So that was a waste, right? He only needed the one. So is that a show of a lack of faith, that he had four additional stones in his pouch waiting? Well, I, I don't know about you, but I think if I were a little shepherd boy going up against a nine-foot armored giant, I would think being out on the field would be a show of faith. And I might also be thinking, you know, 
In the years that I've been protecting my flock, every once in a while, I missed. And so maybe having a few extra. Maybe to me, it'd be, you know, I would probably want to go there with a whole backpack full of stones. (laughs) You know? Think about the physics of this situation. Can you imagine a stone from a sling knocking down a nine-foot man with armor and a shield and a sword and a spear? It doesn't make logical sense to think that one stone is going to kill this dramatically powerful soldier that you're across from. The fact that David was there, even though he had five stones, seems to be demonstration of his faith. But he didn't go there with no stones. He went there prepared. I have a battle to engage in. And five little stones he took. Only one was needed, but it didn't hurt to have four more ready, and that wouldn't be near enough for my marksmanship. Jesus refers to a similar concept in Luke, the 14th chapter, starting in verse 28, when he says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first set down and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who has 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. Jesus says this makes sense, that you prepare for things. You don't just go into it willy-nilly, that you prepare for what you see coming. Now, Jesus is trying to make a very specific point about understanding the cost and making a conscious decision about what you're going to do next. Because in verse 33, he says, So likewise, whoever among you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So he's encouraging to think about what this means to become uh, a disciple of Christ. And it means that they're going to give up a lot to do that. So go into it knowing what you're going to do. But the idea of this general idea of preparation for things coming is valid. It makes sense. Jesus says, this is natural that you do these things. So much like the parable of the pearl of great price or the treasure in the field, he's saying, prepare and give up what is necessary to accomplish your goal. And recognize that uh, that this preparation is either allowing you to enable something or achieve something, or it's allowing you to prevent something. You're either planning for this tower, this structure that you can then build to its entirety, or you're able to prevent something like loss in a war and potentially loss of your life. So David going in with five stones makes sense because he was prepared. Jesus says, prepare. Think about things ahead of time and be prepared when something bad happens. In Luke, the 22nd chapter, Jesus tells his disciples to prepare for his crucifixion as it's looming. When he says to them in verse 36, now he who has, uh, now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. That's a pretty strong statement. Get everything ready. Make sure you have food. Make sure you can carry things. No, I didn't say food. I meant to say money. Make sure you have money. Make sure you have a knapsack to carry things in. And the sword is so important that if you don't have one, sell the clothing you have so that you can go get one. That's pretty serious preparation. 
Jesus is knowing that they're going to need this uh, in the future here. And so after these 12 men look around and they come back and they say, well, we have two swords. And Jesus says, okay, that's, that's enough. Now he had just said everyone needs their own sword. And now he's saying, well, okay, two's enough. Well, what lessons can we learn from this? One, he's expecting them to be prepared. Um, but also that he's not expecting them to go out as an avenging armor. If you saw 12 men walking around with swords, you might think, well, this is something really bad's going to happen. This is more of an army. Jesus sends him out with two swords. What's, what's he might, might he be thinking there? Well, if they encounter bandits. The bandits are going to be looking at armed men that can defend themselves. So maybe these aren't the targets we want to go for. But they have some means to defend themselves. And I think this is a good biblical principle that we should, be, uh, we should understand and that we should exercise when appropriate. Jesus seems to be uh, um, uh, supporting this idea because he's telling them specifically that they should be armed in this case. In fact, so much so that they sell their clothing to make sure that they are armed. But if you believe in this idea of self-defense and you're going to exercise it, realize that there are restrictions upon that as well. I think a good example of something to think about is in Exodus, the 22nd chapter, verses 2 and 3, which says, If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there should be no guilt for his bloodshed. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. And Jesus describes in John 10 and 10 what a thief does. A a thief uh, does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. So think about this, uh, this statement in, in Exodus, the 22nd chapter, a little bit. If you're in the middle of the night and somebody's breaking into your home and you don't know what's happening, but you know there's a thief breaking in which could steal, kill, or destroy, you're going to do your best to protect yourself and your family. And that makes sense. And you may have no idea what the circumstances are here. You just know that there's somebody in your home who shouldn't be there, and it's probably not for good terms. And so in the midst of that, if he dies because you're in a struggle, then there's no guilt for that. But then let's think about the other. What if it's during the daytime? What if you have more information now? You can see what's happening. You can see the amount of force that may be required to stop this evil. And yet if you kill them, then now there's guilt. So I would encourage you, if you believe in self-defense, and I believe it's a biblical concept, that you also spend time thinking about this. That there are limitations to this. This isn't just willy-nilly. We have the ability to defend ourselves, and so we do it in in a rash way. Because there is blood guilt if we exercise violence in places where it's not warranted, where it's not appropriate. And so we find these examples here of Jesus saying to be prepared. He's saying that to his apostles. He's talking about the general concept. And yet he also tells us, Or we have examples of him telling his disciples not to be prepared. In Luke, the ninth chapter, uh, Jesus calls his 12 disciples together and gives them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God, to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Take the clothes on your back and go do this work. Now that's interesting because that's the opposite of what he said there in Luke the second, 22nd chapter. 
And so the first time, he sends him out with absolutely nothing to do this work. Now, if we go back to Luke, the 22nd chapter, we find that um, at the very beginning of this, verses I didn't read, he says to these, his disciples here, he says to them, when I sent you out without money, without a knapsack, without sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And then Jesus says, but now I'm telling you, you need to have money, you need to have a knapsack, you need to have a sword. He's telling them to prepare differently. That's a little hard to reconcile, isn't it? Because Jesus is saying, you know, related to the same group of people doing essentially the same work, he's telling them, don't do anything here. And maybe he's trying to get them to recognize and understand the dependence that they can have upon God. And when they come back to him, they say, we lacked nothing in that case where we took nothing. When we were totally dependent upon others, upon the graciousness of God, we lacked nothing. And now Jesus is, is he's getting ready to be crucified. That happens shortly after this and after Luke, the 22nd chapter. Now he's telling them, be prepared. You're going to need some of this that you were not that you did not need before. So this may have been a teaching scenario in which Jesus is preparing them to know how to behave and how to deal with things when he is gone. And during this time where he's on trial and being crucified. But Jesus also says specifically, don't worry about the physical. In Matthew the sixth chapter, starting in verse twenty five, I'll pick out some Uh, Some phrases here, we're very familiar, I think, with most of this. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then he talks about the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. And then in verse 31, he says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry of its own things. So Jesus is is supporting the idea of preparedness. Giving commands about how to be prepared. And yet here he's saying, don't worry about these things. How do we reconcile this? Is this statement here in Matthew the 6th chapter telling us that Christians will never ever starve to death and never die of exposure? Because God will always ensure they have food and drink. I don't think that's a statement quite in that way. But if we think about even uh, 2 Thessalonians, the third chapter and the 10th verse, it says, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. So there's at least some amount of of, uh, effort and thought involved in, uh, in taking care of our necessities, our food, our drink, our clothing. But when the body of Christ is functioning correctly, then those who have needs will be taken care of. When those who have needs have done what they can to prepare for themselves, they haven't made it their highest priority, but they've, they are at least trying to take care of their, their needs, their basic necessities in some way, then the body of Christ makes sure that the body of Christ is taken care of. <clears throat> we can see it in, in 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter. We're, we're used to this, first day of the week, Lay aside as you've been prospered. There'll be no collections when I come. We talk about that on a regular basis. And verse 3 talks about taking of that gift to Jerusalem to the needy saints. So we see the body of Christ, a fully functioning body of Christ, taking care of those needs. And I think that's a, a, a big part of what's being talked about there in Matthew, the sixth chapter. 
But don't obsess about it. That's what he's saying. Don't ignore it, but don't obsess about it. Don't make it your highest priority to worry about what you're going you're gonna to eat or drink or wear. Luke the 11th chapter and 11th verse says, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent instead of a fish? Now, there's another topic being discussed there entirely, but it's, there's a recognition of something natural. Children are going to ask for food because it's a basic necessity. They need it, they want it, and so we will care for that. It doesn't mean that we can ignore those basic needs, but it means that it's not the highest priority in our lives. We will look to take care of those basic necessities, um, but it's, uh, it's not something that should be the entire focus of our life all the time. And in fact, Jesus, in, uh, earlier in that same chapter, when he's giving an example prayer, he says, give us day by day our daily bread. So he's expecting that there are things that are going to need to happen to bear, take care of our, our necessities. And so Jesus says, don't worry about those things or don't obsess about those things. He's telling us in another place that we should be prepared. But here he's kind of saying, don't, don't worry so much about it, right? So how do we reconcile these Let's begin by considering what might uh, bring hardship upon us. We can expect persecution. 2 Timothy 3 and 12 says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Stephen, when he's right before he's stoned, is saying something similar to the Jews in Acts 7 and 52 when he says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? If you're doing the will of God, you can expect persecution. Now, we may live in a period of time here where we're blessed enough not to be under a lot of direct physical threat of violence because of our faith. But that's not the norm. The norm is that Christians will suffer. And is it wrong to prepare for dangers that you see coming? Say the answer is no. If you see a semi barreling down on you, you probably want to do something about it. It's natural to want to do something about that. It would be unnatural for us to just stand there and wait for the semi to hit us. That would be unnatural. And I think that's true in our Christian life as well. It's appropriate that we prepare the defense of the home there in Exodus 22. The descriptions that Jesus gave about preparing yourself with swords and, and counting the cost with the tower and the war. So when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, isn't he under persecution? When the guards come to take him away, he's under persecution. And Jesus, when he's before Pilate in John 18 and 36, says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So it would have made sense in a, in a normal circumstance that Peter pulling his sword out to defend Jesus to being taken just for saying something. He didn't break a law. He shouldn't have been taken into custody. If we're ignoring prophecy, if we're ignoring the overall, the, grand, the big picture of what Jesus was trying to accomplish here, it would make absolute sense for Peter to defend the Savior. That makes sense. But that didn't further the plans of the Son of God. So Jesus stops this, but he also acknowledges this before Pilate. The most important thing here is not what's in the physical. The most important thing is what's in the spiritual. So if Jesus really wanted to focus upon this uh, a battle here, that we win physically all these battles, 
He says, this is not what my kingdom is about. It's not the here and now. It's the spiritual. So our perspective is crucial. What are we trying to achieve? When we prepare for persecution, what is our objective? What are we trying to get out of that? And let's consider what could Job have done differently to mitigate the physical persecution that he went through. Could he have had just just a little more money? Probably would have fixed that for him. Just a slightly bigger set of, of flocks of all the different animals? No. Because he was already, he had the biggest. He had the best. And yet, nothing he could do to prepare for that was going to change what he went through. What about Stephen? What else could he have done to prepare for the stoning? Nothing. Nothing. No preparation was going to change that. So what are we trying to achieve when we prepare for persecution? Physical persecution. What are we trying to achieve? We're probably trying to avoid some physical discomfort, which that's reasonable. That makes sense. None of us intentionally get uncomfortable. That's not where we want to be. And that's probably our objective when we're preparing for this. But will that preparation... Uh, for persecution, will that save our soul? It will not. It will not save our soul. So the perspective is, is it important to prepare spiritually or physically for persecution? Our spiritual health is in association with our physical circumstances. Remember in Romans the 8th chapter, starting in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Those are all physical things, right? Are those things going to separate you from the love of Christ? Those are physical things that are impacting our spirituality. It's in fact impacting our faith, or it can impact our faith. And he's saying that it shouldn't, but the only reason it's not going to is because our faith is strong. So it's good for us to recognize that our physical circumstances can directly impact our faith. It's going to in one way or another, where the difference will be how strong is our faith, whether or not we survive that. And we see a, a very similar statement made in the parable of the sower in Matthew, the 13th chapter starting in verse 20, but who has received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. But when tribulation and persecution arise because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Our physical circumstances can and will affect our faith, should we allow it. It puts pressure upon our faith. So what do we do to mitigate this pressure that that persecution is putting on us? Can we ever completely remove the impact of persecution upon us? With all the best preparation, we already talked about Job, it didn't help. With Stephen, it didn't help. And we can hope for deliverance from persecution. That's fair. 2 Timothy 3 the Apostle uh, Paul is talking to uh, Timothy, and he, he's commending him for following. He, you've carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions. 
persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord delivered me. Remember how the Lord delivered him? Well, when he got stoned and was left for dead, he got up and got back to work. You remember what Jesus said to Paul when he was converted? <laughs> you're going you're gonna to learn the suffering that you're going to go through for my name's sake. So here's the Apostle Paul being beaten and shipwrecked and all those things that he, he lists off. And yet the Lord delivered him. You think that's the deliverance that Paul really wanted? Because as he went through all of that pounding physically, all of the abuse physically, he would get back up and he would heal and he would continue to work the gospel. What's the deliverance that Stephen got? Stoning was his persecution and the Lord delivered him, but his delivery was different. His deliverance was to see the Son of God at the right hand of the Father and then to fall asleep. God doesn't promise us a comfortable life. He doesn't even promise us life. The deliverance for the Apostle Paul was to get up and do more work and to deal with the pain and continue to forge ahead. The deliverance for Stephen was to die. They were both deliverance from persecution. God has not promised us a comfortable life. He's not promised us life. He has promised us the life that comes after this physical life. So when the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, the first chapter in the 20th verse, so now also Christ will be magnified on my body, whether by life or by death. So for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The longer that the Apostle Paul is here, the more the gospel, gospel can be spread. But to die is a good thing for Paul. That's what he was looking forward to. That's the deliverance that he really wanted. He really didn't want to have to heal up again. He really wanted to go. So our priority is to be of strong faith so that we are prepared for the next life. Preparing to endure persecution is reasonable, but it's not the ultimate goal. It's reasonable to do, but we have to keep the right perspective. Jesus addresses the pressure that our society puts on us, puts on Christians in general. Specifically, he is answering a question in Matthew, the 24th chapter, that his disciples have asked him about the destruction of the temple and when it will happen. Uh, verses, uh, starting in verse 3, they say to Jesus, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And, and I'm less interested in what his, his answer to that is, but what he says about things that Christians will endure. <clears throat> Jesus says to them, and you will hear wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines, pestilence and earthquakes in various places. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another because lawlessness abounds 
the love of money of many will grow cold. But he who endures till the end shall be saved. Listen to those descriptions. Does that sound familiar at all? If it doesn't, you haven't watched the news. Because that's what we're hearing constantly, right? There's wars ongoing. There's rumors of wars. Our nation is in turmoil right now. The concern not is that you may die in war, but that you might lose your faith. Even if we successfully prepare for persecution and we succeed in that surviving that, we have not achieved salvation. So keep perspective. We live in unprecedented good times. It's been um, conjectured that the world has only been at peace for about 8% of its existence. I don't know if that's a valid number or not, but when you stop and think about it, it's probably reasonable to think that that may be the right number. The more I learn about European history and African history and Asian history, and it's all about war. Wars last 100 years in one case in Europe. There's constant war. If you're a soldier, you're dying. If you're a civilian, you're suffering or dying. There's persecution because of the color of your skin or what you believe. Those things have been going on forever. Do you realize that in our nation, just, just over 150 years ago, our nation was torn apart by a civil war? I don't know how many generations. That it just It's not very far away. How many generations did it take for us to, for us to get from the Civil War to, to today? So it's entirely possible that our nation be torn apart in war again. And just like it has been throughout history, Christians will suffer. Because that seems to be our lot. We will be hated because of what we believe. The fact that we have not been invaded and conquered is, is really a, a tremendous blessing. It's, it's almost without measure that we can be thankful. This is unusual. So we should be prepared in one way or another for persecution. Because if it's not us, it will be our children. If it's not their children, it will be theirs. It's, it certainly is the norm, not the exception. So be prepared for persecution. It's reasonable. But when we observe the trend in the United States, it's got to be coming. And I know this isn't some old geezer talking about the good old days. I, I, don't, I don't feel that way. I'm simply just watching. It's, the signs are there. Bad things are bound to happen at some point. Um, the question is, are you ready? We, we may be insulated in some respect, being here in the Bible Belt, from all the, the lawlessness and insanity that seems to be happening on the east and west coast and the north part of our nation. Um, but our faith is under attack. Those who believe in God um, are looked down on, are sometimes attacked physically, um, are being, they are paying the price, even their livelihood, uh, for their faith. 
So Christians have always been persecuted and always under attack, and, and we will not change that. And that, that doesn't mean that we should not wield our influence where possible to, to diminish that, to still be lights in this world. I'm not suggesting that we just ignore it and give up because it's bound to happen anyway. Um, but the world will not know peace until it knows Jesus. That's where peace comes from. That's what makes peaceful people is by knowing the Savior of all. So, prepare for physical persecution, however you see fit. I always love it when I can study and end up with a just a crisp answer to a question. I can't find a crisp answer to the question that I've been posed. I can't tell you whether or not you should go out and buy extra food or gasoline or whatever to prepare for the next persecution. I just can't do that. I'm, I'm still struggling with those things myself. What's a reasonable response to the things that I'm seeing? What's reasonable for me to think might happen and that I can still fulfill my responsibilities to my family? I don't know the answer to that. I, I, wish, I, I wish I could give you something more definitive. Uh, but what I do know is it is better to be prepared to die than to live. For to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So, make reasonable preparations to weather whatever physical persecutions you may encounter in your life. But more so, make extreme preparations to be spiritually prepared and ready to meet your righteous judge.